So as they were uncovered, we hauled them out of Bear Creek, and we stored them inside the old root cellar, and Kathy put an item in the Klondike corner describing what she'd found. What I put in there, does anybody have any idea what these films were doing in the ground in the first place? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Lane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 70 and Cole has picked something really special, I think. I think so too. It's rare that such a recent film makes it into the show for us, but this one was undeniable from the moment I first saw it. And that selection is Dawson City Frozen Time from 2016, written edited and directed by Bill Morrison, and with a luminous score from Alex Summers. It's a documentary, for lack of a better term, that unspools the strange but true story of a treasure trove of nitrate film prints that were discovered after being buried in the permafrost and forgotten for decades, taking us through the boom and bust cycles of a Klondike gold rush town and how its unique position on the edge of civilization ended up making it a place where the film prints went to meet and then be saved from oblivion. The first Bill Morrison I got to see was The Great Flood, and that was a part of my Ants in Your Pants of 2017 listing. At that point, I thanked you for bringing me to Bill Morrison, and I thank you even more heartily right now, because this film is amazing, and I'm so glad I got to see it. I called it a documentary right off the bat, but is that how you would define this film? Do you have a specific image in your head when I say historical documentary? Because Morrison's usual collage style is not necessarily what you think of when you ponder that phrase. This isn't one talking head after another, or an over-reliance on the Ken Burns effect with a folksy narrator. In fact, there's almost no spoken word in it at all. It is almost all text on screen. And instead... Morrison meticulously crafts a document from these damaged and discarded prints. It's probably closer to straight documentary than anything he's done before, but does it still qualify? Would you call it something else? I definitely consider it to be a documentary, and that can span many different meanings and interpretations. I've got no problem with the Ken Burns effect, and one of the really interesting connections we might mention later on when we get to it is an inspiration for that Ken Burns effect. And I think that this aspires to a lot more as well, and I think about Bill Morrison's words, combining history and the poetry. Well, it certainly does that, for me at least, because to me, the decay is absolute poetry. Decay is frequently an integral part of his work, and it functions in this case as both text and subtext, interestingly enough. He weaves these elements together with other bits of the historical record, and the end result It's almost as if you're being given clues to a mystery that you didn't even know you were working on, and lo and behold, by the end, you are completely wrapped up in it. I was also struck by how amazing the specific kind of deterioration in these films occurs. Bill Morrison mentioned that because of the permafrost damage, the way these were housed, and the nitrate, that this level of deterioration happened that you might not see if it were housed in other places. And he talked about how it's almost as if the underlying image is fighting to be seen. 
Whereas in other methods of deterioration, it might be straight down through the middle of the frame. These were often at the edges and it can work to draw your eye in really interesting ways and make you focus on your interpretation of what you're seeing. And then so as you start to put all of these images together, a wholly different story starts to evolve. The heart of that story for me comes out of what I consider to be the other twin pillar of Morrison's body of work the archaic. It's not just history that he focuses on, but the history of things that are outmoded, left behind, forgotten. You put that together with the beautiful decay and you have films that seem to be tailor-made specifically for me. It's like he read my diary. Speaking of, his newest work is about trains, which I cannot wait to see. Oh my gosh. Did he call you up beforehand? No, you would think so. Was there a Twitter poll you had to fill out? I like to think it's just like the secret. You put it out into the universe and it's Bill Morrison so saves the day. <laughs> and just to piggyback on what you mentioned a moment ago, he likes to think about what gets saved, what gets lost, what gets forgotten, and what gets remembered. Yeah, he's yelling right down my alley with this. Because there is something about those things that I cannot help but romanticize. And for all of his film's non-traditional style, at least as far as documentaries are concerned, and the sometimes harsh quality of these nearly destroyed images. To me, Bill Morrison's films offer this gentle reassurance that at least a few people out there care about the discarded and the obsolete. You may be battered, broken, forgotten by almost everyone, but Bill Morrison is out there digging, hoping to repurpose you, appreciate your damaged beauty, and give you a new audience all over again. It's definitely a different way of looking at things for me. I guess I'm used to the art museum way of life sometimes, where I can appreciate the restoration into something so beautiful that may have been caked underneath something else. While Bill Morrison, I think, sometimes can find that disintegration even more beautiful. That is absolutely true. Now, having established that, the film itself starts in a way that is almost shocking in how incongruous the environment is with what we expect of Morrison if we are familiar with his body of work. The avant-garde documentarian is on the set of a sports talk show. We eventually see what the host is so excited about, though, and it is definitely Morrisonian. Actual footage comes later in the film of the Black Sox scandal taking place before our very eyes in 1919, including a degraded, frame-by-frame -frame breakdown of a suspiciously botched play, which I never thought I would lay eyes on. I've seen this specific aspect to The Find mentioned many times. Why do you think that captures people's imagination so much? I'm asking this as a person who's not a baseball fan. Does that make all the difference? It probably makes a big difference, but it looms so large because I think it takes in so many aspects of American culture. In 1919, that truly was the national pastime. We did not have anything else. There was no NBA. There was no NFL. So if you are going to gather and celebrate the spectacle of sport, that is your choice. And it really is, at least was, I guess it's not so much anymore, a part of the true American identity. But on top of that, intertwined with the whole story, you had gangsters, gamblers, politicians. It made its way into every facet of American life. And more than anything, we love a good scandal. Do you think it's also that idea of we don't know what we're looking at at the time, as if we uncovered a film of Lee Harvey Oswald walking into the book depository two hours beforehand? There is definitely that true crime aspect to it, for sure, because you are watching what 
at least for a certain segment of the population, would have been considered the biggest betrayal that they had ever seen in their entire lives. It happened right there in front of them. I guess ultimately I asked that question because it feels like such a small piece for me of the whole of what's uncovered. There are so many other moments that are much bigger revelations to me specifically as a viewer. I think that's just a function in the opposite direction of us being in our film, film, film bubble. We are much more excited about Movie Tone News and Universal Screen Magazine and any number of lost features and shorts that might not be that culturally significant, but are definitely interesting artifacts to us. But we forget sometimes, because this is all we talk about to each other, that we are in a distinct minority. I guess other people might not have been as excited as I was to see the Lumiere brothers. The audience for this film certainly will be, but if we were to walk out on the street and just take a straw poll of people coming in and out of my bookstore, for instance, how many of them know the Lumiere brothers versus how many of them are aware of the Black Sox scandal, I think we know which one would win. P.S. He found that Black Sox footage on day one of his searching. Can you imagine what an inspiration that would be and how much no matter how tired you would get or how your eyes would be weary, that would keep you going if you knew, hmm, I just opened the box and this was the first thing I saw. Well, it quickly settles down into a comfortable rhythm after that opening as he uses this first section to introduce characters and ideas to us that will be central to the story. And the first character is Dawson City itself. Viewed first through aerial shots, and it seems like it's all of eight blocks long at most, hemmed in closely by mountains on one side and the Yukon River on the other. How soon till we take a vacation there? Uh, you might be doing that one without you, me. Are you telling me that you do not want to go to Diamond Tooth Gertie's gambling hall? Are you crazy? Okay. Actually, after reading about it, I want to go to the Dawson City Museum because it sounds awesome. Well, whatever it takes to get you there, I'm game. In addition to the town, we get glimpses of the initial discovery of the films as they are unearthed, the contemporary crowd that has gathered to watch them at their world re-premiere in the Palace Grand Theater. An interesting note about that, on that night, they had an old-time silent-screen pianist named Fred Bass come in and do the accompanying music. Following tradition, he did not view the films ahead of time. He just accompanied them live, which sounds like so much fun. And we've had a bit of a similar experience at Austin Film Society as well. We've been really lucky in Austin in general. I've been fortunate enough to see The General, Anna Mae Wong in Piccadilly, Louise Brooks' Diary of a Lost Girl, all of these with contemporary scores performed live in the theater. And if you ever get the chance, I can't recommend the experience enough. In addition to those scenes, we also get a brief history of the invention and evolution of nitrate film stock. And I think we each had a particular thing that resonated with us in this opening section. For me, it was the image of the reels of film scattered among the dirt and debris. In the tableau of this construction site, film really gets your attention as it is popping up out of the ground. It is not something you expect to see unearthed, and for you, I think it was the portion that described how film was born of an explosion. The moment that we see cellulose being born is when he had me. I love that moment of seeing the reels in the ground. It's like mummies being unfurled. Did that section about nitrate film appeal to you specifically because of your love of process, do you think? That explanation of how it evolved from gun cotton to plastic with the addition of camphor, in addition to the footage of the Lumiere brothers, which you mentioned, 
What particularly was so striking about that section? I can only describe it as watching alchemy happen. You're looking at something for a period of time and suddenly it becomes something else. And it's this thing that I've built my life around. For me, it's less about the explosion or the inherent complete lack of safety around nitrate film. I think maybe that appeals to your evil Knievel nature a little bit more. <laughs> yes, and as you mentioned, I do love process. It just makes something happen inside of me. It makes me so excited. It's like magic, but in the real world. Not to gloss over that nice little bonus of footage of the Lumiere brothers, who were among the very first filmmakers and film exhibitors. Ironically, I had only ever seen them in still photographs prior to this. Everybody's seen Edison. You couldn't keep that guy out from in front of the camera, but not the Lumiere brothers. But since you brought it up and are talking about my daredevil nature, I do want to talk for just a bit about one of the ideas that fascinates me the most as an avid filmgoer, and that is how, in the infancy of cinema, film going was quite literally dangerous. Nitrate film stock is a legendarily volatile, highly combustible, spontaneously even, and it burns so instantly and completely, even underwater. From the very beginning of cinema, theater fires were not uncommon. The opening theme music of our show, in fact, is actually from a song called Theater Fire by our band, Some Say Leland. These incidences loom large in our collective imagination, even making it into our lexicon, shouting fire in a crowded theater and all that. In 1897, just as Dawson City was beginning to bloom, in Paris, at the Bazaar de la Charité, 126 people, mostly women of the aristocracy, died when the projectionist cinematograph caught fire. The Laurier Palace Theatre fire in Montreal, also known as the saddest fire, is another notable example. And I had also looked up a couple of examples of Virginia and West Virginia theaters of the period, and they're gone, often through fire, and we'll see that in the history of Dawson as well. And not just Dawson, Thomas Edison's complex exploded in 1914, a Fox film vault burned in 1937, the MGM film vault famously burned in 1967. That same year, the National Film Board of Canada lost every single one of its nitrate film holdings to fire. And, like you mentioned, Dawson City wasn't immune. Though their fires seemed fortunately more free of casualties for the most part, Mid-20th century, they had three theaters in town, and two of them burned in a four-year span between 1936 and 1940. But all of that is in keeping with the history of the town, though, as Dawson City was destroyed by fire every year for the first nine years of its existence. So when you talk about films being lost forever, you can understand why they went up in flames. That's one of the reasons. Another significant reason that we'll get to, and that ties into everything that Morrison does, is that no one cared. Films were thought of as disposable. But before I get off on too much of a tangent with that, let's get back to the film. There are so many intertwining threads, and what I truly appreciate is the fact that not even the smallest detail we are given is accidental or goes unresolved. Next, we get the history of Dawson City a gold rush boomtown with all of the attendant problems that go with that, including the fact that First Nations indigenous people suffered almost immediately, unceremoniously removed from this land that was now so lucrative. And when I say lucrative, I am not exaggerating. It generated five tons of gold in 1897. But one of the main things that makes it so notable for cinephiles, in addition to history buffs, is how much Dawson City's history is tied up with the movies in a number of ways that even go back to its origin. 
The very first notable way being the fact that the Klondike Gold Rush was the first gold rush that coincided with our ability to shoot moving pictures of it. And it's considered to be one of the, if not the most, cinematically documented event of the 19th century. Well, it even went far beyond that because it extended into the middle of the century with the fiction films that are made about it. In addition to the documentary footage that you have of it from the late 1890s, you have silent films chronicling the whole thing starting in 1915, all the way up until 1950 and beyond. I think out of all of the footage that we saw of the actual event, I was most taken with the footage of the Willamette, a small ship unbelievably somehow holding 800 people and 300 horses, heading off into an environment that is most unforgiving, unimaginably difficult. Each man that walked into the Yukon in search of his fortune was required to bring a literal ton of supplies apiece. Seven out of ten died or turned back, and for the first time there was footage of it, which is an astounding fact all by itself. Can you imagine the impact of seeing that then? I have two things to say about that. First, the most striking image to me is watching the trail of humans and the packs that they're carrying that seems to go on into eternity and in a very tragic way to me. It also makes me think about the waves of people. You have the first wave to go in, the people who really discovered that load. And then, as it happens in that period of American history and still to this day, news starts to get out. And then to me, this could be my interpretation, every image of every person afterwards looks more tired and more desperate and thinner and more bedraggled. It's the people coming in, to my mind, trying to find an escape to something, trying to find a better life. This time specifically because they had actually seen the movies of it, which had never happened before. If you are in, let's say, San Francisco in 1897, and you see this footage coming back, are you inspired to go in search of your fortune? This is with the hindsight of history. I don't think that you can get that leaflet that says, come to California for jobs and believe it after a while. And then when you arrive, you've got to be aware of the entire second industry of people who are made to take money off of poor and desperate people. But again, if you're desperate enough, you're going to go anyway. When I think about those people escaping to something, I think about what they're leaving behind. Has to their mind got to be worse off than what they're going to? Well, in addition to this footage, we have a number of examples of Eric Hegg's photography also, which figure prominently in the film, and they are all equally as remarkable as the footage. And via film and photographs, the ebb and flow of Dawson City over the boom and bust cycle is all here. The population growing from 3,500 to 40,000 in one year, a year later dropping to a quarter of that size, eventually shrinking to under 1,000. The origins of the Trump fortune can be traced to the region. All of these colliding forces of unbridled capitalism, exploitation, excess, and entertainment were being brought to bear on a region that was little more than wilderness. Though in 1901 they made Dawson quote-unquote respectable, civilization arrived and brothels and gambling were tucked discreetly away, and the rec center became the town hub. What they had in great numbers in Dawson City now was a captive audience, and starting in 1910, in between mining and mining the miners, like you mentioned, all these people went to the movies at Dawson City's three main theaters. 
for that was the year that silent films first made their way to the Klondike, including, eventually, Europe's startling sensation, Seven Capital Sins. Sid Grauman, later to found Grauman's Chinese Theater, saw his first film there. Theater mogul Alexander Pantages got his start in Dawson City, as did one of Hollywood's most notorious murder victims, William Desmond Taylor. Thinking about those three in particular, it strikes me as people who are early adopters slash visionaries. I wonder about that, because I put a lot of stock in this thing that you were just saying about having nowhere else to go. I wonder how much of it was that versus the other. I tend to think that it is someone chasing something, whether it is a dream or it's money or it's some better life. They manage to hang on to what is happening in the moment and keep moving it forward. Not necessarily because they were great art lovers, but it reminds me a bit of Tucker, the man in his dream, when he's at least smart and interested enough to understand bicycle to car. And then you're on the ground floor. So I guess ultimately it seems like the greatest parlay rather than true artistic genius. Well, clearly, to paraphrase the great man W.C. Fields, Dawson City can't get the celluloid out of its blood. And it was the literal end of the line as far as film distribution went. By the time a movie got to Dawson City, it was too expensive to ship them back. Preservation, like we mentioned, was not even a consideration. Films were considered completely disposable, and this is where they went to die. So there, buried like the telltale heart, was this cache of these neglected films from the early days of cinema, films long thought lost. This jackpot they found in 1978 was voluminous, 533 reels in all, and it was varied enough that Morrison could expertly assemble clips here grouped by common themes that evoked nearly every aspect of life, both on this frontier and otherwise. I looked it up, and with all of the feet of film that they found, it ended up being about 92 hours. Well, after seeing what he did with that and knowing his other work, I have to say that montage may be Morrison's sharpest skill. And we are treated to a number of evocative examples here, all culled from the films unearthed here. We have the contrary motion of the lives of Alexander Berkman and Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a humorless bastard if ever there was one. We see men, machinery, and war in 1914, scenes of industry, a comical sequence of freight being treated carelessly, legal proceedings, actors bursting through doors, men reading newspapers, women looking forlorn, which was my favorite. My favorite was women being scared. Two things make these sequences so effective for me. One, Morrison has such a meticulous and skillful eye to find so many corresponding and complementary images in this mountain of films. And the way he ties everything together is immaculate. In particular, the dissolve tying Chief Isaac back to his younger self just hit me like a thunderbolt. In this mass of photographs, exhibitors' receipts, leases, and other ephemera, miraculously there is not a single loose end somehow. All these details he gives along the way, the bulge in the ice, the abandoned library, every piece of this mystery, it all pays off. And two, the second thing I find so effective about it, the flaws of these films themselves. Some appear like flames, others appear like water, there are ghosts, serendipitous highlighting of portions of the frame like you mentioned. He manages to select images that not only concoct a seamless narrative, but they are also staggeringly beautiful in my opinion. I enjoyed so much the use of the interstitials as well. 
how after all of this time, as Bill Morrison mentions, they just seem to become metaphorical without even trying. I was going to ask you how you felt about this. One of the details that I found so surprising was the astounding amount of documentation of the transport, storage, and destruction of these films, as it turned out. There was so much of it left for Morrison to uncover, and it's a real roller coaster ride. I love that they have the original screening dates for so much of what they found. I hate that several tons of films literally went into the Yukon River. Was that shocking to you at all for such a treasure trove that they considered lost? It's shocking to me only because I am not a hoarder. I'm not a pack rat. I don't save things as mementos. I don't save records in that sort of way either. So thankfully, I was not left in charge of it. I'm not saying that I would have sent any of this down the river because I think that would have felt like my limbs floating away from me. But maintaining stacks of old-timey receipts? Forget it. I will say, though, the other side of my personality, the librarian side, appreciates microfiche. So we should absolutely keep maintaining newspapers so we can see those great advertisements. So we can see how these events were reported on as well. That's one of the most interesting things about it. It wasn't that long. It was 1938, maybe, just less than a decade later when the very first article popped up speculating on the fate of these lost, quote-unquote, lost films. After having experienced the ride of Dawson City Frozen Time, I feel like I know these people. Or at least I'd really like to. Klondike Kate and Apple Jimmy, are you kidding me? Who doesn't want to hang out with them? I guess we should be ultimately grateful that you were not on any of these boards and for what did survive and these archivists, preservationists, and cinephiles that navigated this red tape necessary to get it all done. Thanks to them, 533 reels preserved, pieces of 372 separate features, shorts, and newsreels, some of them being the only known copies of these titles now in the world. We talked earlier about that amazing find of the Black Sox. This makes me think about Sam Kula, who was director of Canada's National Film, Television, and Sound Archives, who was instrumental in this process. He described the Dawson find as the high point of his career. He was hoping to find some films of Theda Berra. We have very, very little evidence of her work on film. Is there something that you wish we could have found in this? There is definitely that one. And funny, this is exactly what I was going to ask you. These films that were found, what do you make of them? Because there were no individual earth-shaking discoveries. No extra reel of Metropolis, for example. Not the one I would have been looking for, which was London After Midnight. So there was nothing significant in it in that way, in an individual title sort of way. Out of what we saw, I quite favor the scientific and the travelogue, the National Geographic type entries, the tadpole birth of flowers section in particular, the photography of those flowers is so beautiful. The streets of Palestine a century ago, the elephants in Parak, Malaysia, basically all the scenes from Universal Screen Magazine. You know me, though. I wish every major metropolitan area had been legally required to mount motion picture cameras on the front of every streetcar in 1929 and save all that footage forever. I could watch vintage street scenes until the day I die. I love seeing what daily life was like then for people all over the world. Since there were no significant individual standouts, were there favorites, though, that you had to? The ones you mentioned made me gasp out loud when we watched it, especially the tadpoles. 
It's those things that inspired me as a kid that if I had been watching them on screen, I would have been so inspired by and realized it's a great big world out there. Aside from possibly uncovering Jack the Ripper or seeing the sinking of the Titanic, I just want to see more of these things that taught us what the world was like through these narrative films, how we were supposed to feel and think about things. Interesting that you say that, because I really think Dawson City was poised perfectly for that. It wasn't an actual organically grown place. It sprang up so instantly that it seems like it was almost more people's idea they got from movies or some other media as to what a city on the frontier was supposed to be like. I've mentioned on this show the reason that I went to Alaska for my first year of college was because of the TV show Northern Exposure. So I get it. I get what they were going for, and I also get why they would escape to one of the four movie theaters operating. This makes me think of a specific thing I wanted to talk with you about, because you will understand. There's a story from one of the Dawson City natives who talked about during that period, there was a backwoodsman who would come into town every six months or so, he would sell his furs, and he would go into each of the movie theaters that were running. This is not a story that's in the film, but you mean a piece of the oral history of Dawson City. Yes. He would go into each of these movie theaters, and there were several that were running simultaneously, sometimes changing programs twice a week, two or three features, serials, a fresh set of newsreels. Once he was satisfied that he had caught up with the world, in his words, he would go back out to the woods again. I can directly relate to that. So for me, and for how I think you feel about this as well, why do we live movies? Not love movies. Take movies at face value, try to interpret them, try to learn more from them, try to determine what they're not telling us, use them as our own artistic expression, feed off of the mastery of others' artistic expression. What is it about us and this backwoodsman and many of the other people of Dawson who live these movies too? Do you think it was more of a function of the time? Do you think that it's a way of life that's timeless? I think it's different for everyone. I think it might even be just slightly different between you and I. For so many people, it's escape and entertainment. It's not that for me. For me, it is so important because I truly feel like it is the greatest, most versatile art form there is. Film can incorporate elements of literature, of painting, of sculpture, of music. We can experience all those things simultaneously in new and different combinations than we previously could. It affects me that way simply because it is the most ambitious way to communicate a set of ideas. And so it goes far beyond just passing the time out on the frozen prairie for me. For me, it's edification more than anything else. I want to specifically talk about the music here. Is that okay in this spot? Yeah, that's illustrating exactly what I'm talking about. You mentioned briefly towards the beginning Alex Summers, who put together this music, and he also recommended his brother, John Summers, as the sound designer. The score, like all of the previous examples of Bill Morrison's films, is indelible. It's such a perfect composition to this film. It's eerie, it's enigmatic, and something I read made so much sense when I think back on the experience. There were a couple of moments where I had to cover my ears, and I think that's because John Summers specifically developed the flow of the music, 
to coincide with the degree of decay in each frame. He made this audio component to correlate to it, and it makes it even more haunting, and also, in certain parts, gut-churning. I wholeheartedly agree. I think I said luminous in the beginning. I would also toss incendiary in there. For me, it perfectly conveyed the volatility of the medium that we were talking about with this nitrate stock. At moments, it wasn't just decay. It felt like it was on the verge of explosion itself. In reference to the decaying films, at what point for you does a flaw become art? Because I think this aesthetic is a little closer to me than you, although I know you enjoy it a great deal. The abstract nature of what is happening on screen with some of these degraded shots feels like more a me thing than a you thing. In this day and age of Blu-ray pristine 4K scans, what does it take to move an imperfection beyond what might be an annoyance for the average viewer into the realm of magic that we see? I imagine like all art, it's different for everyone. A hair in the gate adds a certain personality. Vinegar syndrome marks it as a very specific time and place. A lifetime of splices due to circulation give a very specific feel to the theater experience. A lot of these examples are particular to the repertory or exploitation cinema experience, but are we more forgiving of these flaws in some realms versus others? What makes it art for you? Keep in mind, I don't necessarily come from the school of exhibition being the highest point in my life. I'm the person who had the 13-inch TV and thought I was living large at that point. You just made everyone's hair stand on end. I'm sure I did. So I don't always have to have 4K to enjoy something. I think that I can appreciate when I see the difference when my eyes are opened, but I'm the person who tends to fall into the story and I could be watching it through a keyhole. So then I think it takes an artist to show me what I might have been missing. How this decay can play around the image. How I can look at a woman draped over a rock in a different way than I would have before. I think Bill Morrison also makes an interesting point that sometimes in these films, to some audiences, maybe less to me than others, but you can feel a certain remove because of a different acting style, or possibly a less interesting framing device. But with this, you're left with the image and what we can see after all of this time, and the words and how they become metaphors I mentioned. So when I can see something that existed before I came along and derive some sort of a different meaning from it, I think that's art. Well, then here's we're coming to the end. I just have one last big question for you. Is it a silly thing in retrospect to treat these artifacts, any artifacts for that matter, with such reverence? Is this stuff only of interest to cinephiles? Like I said at the top, we are so much in our bubble of film, film, film. And when it comes down to it, this is just ephemera, but no more so than we are. And maybe that's why I enjoy Morrison's films so much. That's an idea which I am very comfortable with. You dig me out of the permafrost after a century, and I won't be this useful or interesting. Earlier I mentioned I'm not a hoarder, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe in preservation. And I don't know how you could look at these things and think they should be sent down the river, literally, as you mentioned. You are seeing, in a way that we have no other access to, how people lived and acted and looked and felt and spoke. We see the evolution of the art form. We see a specific piece of indelible history come alive. We see how it affected people, how it changed people, how it destroyed people. 
And I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. We should keep these stories close to us. Well, you know I asked that question purely as a rhetorical device because you know my answer. I chose this for the show, not only because of how much it speaks to me and my preoccupations, I feel like I am truly in love with the idea of decay as part of the narrative. I feel emotions about it. Do you mean like in a Mariah Carey sort of way? <laughs> it's deeper than even that. Imperfection to me is infinitely more interesting than perfection. But I also chose it because of the things that you were just talking about. Because preservation and archival work are so crucial to those of us that care deeply about the art form, and Morrison's work is inextricably linked with these ideas. The significance of the role of cultural memory in our lives should never be underestimated. And I deeply appreciate the fact that someone so skilled at assembly is out there on this quest, tirelessly turning over all these rocks to see what's underneath. It sounds like a dream to me. I am so glad you brought that up because this leads to my last question for you. Knowing what I know of you, that you're a collector, but more than that, you're a seeker. You are always actively seeking out titles that you've heard of, that someone has mentioned to you, things that have inspired other things. So I think specifically about this find, this Dawson City find, and also tangentially, the great Dan Halstead and his find of all of those amazing kung fu films in the basement of a theater. I wonder how much of Bill Morrison's process and this work speaks to you directly from that standpoint. Do you wish that we were roaming around the country finding random bits of film in places? Yes, I do. Do you know? Hello, have we just met? <laughs> Dan Halstead, first of all, is the Indiana Jones of Kung Fu film. Shout out to Dan Halstead. He does amazing work. But yes, I think I relate to these films on a completely different level because of that as well. I am not just a viewer. And so that emotion that I feel probably comes along with the fact that I am imagining myself on this journey with him. As you probably gathered from what I was saying just a few minutes ago, film going is not a passive experience for me. It is not just a sit there, watch it, now it's over thing. There is so much work that goes into it. And I think this central idea of preserving cultural memory is the part of what I relate to the most in what Bill Morrison does. I have the deepest affection and respect for archivists of all sorts. And I am so happy for them when I hear about something like this that is like striking gold for them. Does that mean that we should get a VW bus, a shovel, and a metal detector and just hit the road? I've said it before. Motorcycle, sidecar for Gibson. <laughs> Put his little helmet and scarf on him, and we hit the open road. Well, before we get into recommendations, I just wanted to mention Dawson City Frozen Time is available from Kino. Everyone should go get it. There are also two fantastic collections available of Bill Morrison's work. A Region 1 set from Icarus Films, purveyors of fine documentaries themselves. And a fantastic Region 2 set we have that is released by the BFI. I love that set. All of these titles I highly recommend. But as far as our regular recommendations, what do you have for us? My recommendation was inspired by the almost Herculean attempts to actually transport these incredibly unsafe nitrate films to safety. So I picked... The Wages of Fear from 1953, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau, with Yves Montand and Vera Clouseau. 
it's about four men basically at the end of their rope in a decrepit South American village who are hired to transport nitroglycerin without any sort of safety equipment and over terrible roads. These men all have circumstances that I imagine would not have been out of place among the people who ended up in Dawson City. These people that you're talking about that have nothing left in the place they are. So they find themselves at the edge of a frontier in some godforsaken town with nothing left to lose. Am I also allowed to sneak in a second recommendation of Sorcerer? <laughs> I think you just did. Huh. Seamless. I'm going to save that for an episode, though. And how about your recommendation? For my recommendation, I'm going to just say watch more Bill Morrison. And the one in this case that I would say to go to next is Decasia from 2002. This is Morrison's breakthrough, I think, is what most people consider it. And it has a score by Michael Gordon. You mentioned the music and everything that we've seen. His collaborators in that regard are top-notch. Bill Frizzell, Steve Reich working with him on the new one, and Michael Gordon is no slouch. This one doesn't have as much of a concrete narrative through line as Dawson City does, but it turns the decay up to 11. So if you like that aspect of Dawson, you will love Decasia. Whether you embrace it as representative of beautiful chaos, or you fight it tooth and nail as a metaphor for your inevitable doom, you will not be able to deny that Morrison can make you feel things you never thought you would about what some people would consider refuse. They call it found footage, but I think that phrase severely discounts the artistry on display here. It is much more than found. So once again, that's two great recommendations, The Wages of Fear and Decasia. Okay, I lied. I have one more recommendation. Okay, Erica's Night of a Thousand and One recommendations. I've got to see this one too, and it is City of Gold. This is the film that we mentioned much earlier that Ken Burns credits with his inspiration for the sweeping pans using music over still footage. And this is a significant early example of that. So that's one we need to put on our list so we can track down. And that brings us to the end of episode 70. First and foremost, I wanted to say a special thanks to Tim Lego and Mark Herney for becoming our newest Patreon supporters. They have been longtime stalwart boosters of the show, and we appreciate their support in any avenue, especially this one, very much. If you have yet to take a look at our Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com slash magiclantern. There are all sorts of perks available, and you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month and any amount is definitely appreciated. Also, a special thanks goes out this time around to Brian Sauer, who runs the excellent blog Rupert Pupkin Speaks. He invited me to come on and do a list of my favorite film discoveries of 2017. It is always one of my favorite projects to take part in every year. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate the invitation. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I would just like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. Jeff Duncanson, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Michael Hutchins, Grindhouse Dave, Ashley Sayers, Mike Scharf, and Alice Hargreaves. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. Just about any other podcatcher you use, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that as well. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. 
And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 